Hello and welcome to P4A's Let's Talk Rare, a monthly podcast from Partners for Access. Bringing you the most important news, trends and discoveries in the world of orphan drugs and cell and gene therapy. Join me, Georgie Rack. And me, Owen Bryant. To analyse these developments and what they mean to you. Hello and welcome to the show. So P4A are celebrating five years of the P4A podcast. And not only that, we are now the number one life science podcast across all platforms. We are growing our audience and currently have over 35,000 subscribers. I just wanted to take the time to thank you, our listeners, as we always strive to give you valuable insights and learnings from our incredible guests. And without you, simply, we would just not be as successful as we are now. So thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for your support and for listening to us every month. Now... Let's get on with the show. We've got a great episode lined up for you today, obviously celebrating our five years. So let's burn the wood and aim for the tin. Oh, what are you talking about? Burn the wood, aim for the tin. So, Owen, the five-year anniversary, the traditional gift is wood, and the 10-year anniversary is aluminium or tin. So, basically, we're burning wood of the last five years, and we're aiming for the tin. No, it all makes sense. I'm so stupid. And I'm really, really, just just noting to our guests that are on the call with us today, I am expecting a really nice gift for our 10-year anniversary. So, I'm thinking tin of beans, maybe, aluminium tin foil, something along that kind of way. So, there's no expense paid here. At partners for access, as you can see. Well, the world is our oyster, obviously, or our tin of beans. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, joined with me today, we've got our veteran podcaster and presenter from 2018 to 2021. So all of you listeners that have followed us diligently for the last five years should know who we're talking about. But it is the one, it is the only, Mr. Parna Krishnan. <laughs> you can't see what's happening here, but there is a ticket tape parade currently happening right now. <laughs> down Normally, we record this podcast separately. We do. Um, you're in your office, I'm at my office at home, but today we've all congregated in the office and we're all together, and it couldn't be a better occasion to do so. So, Aparna, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's been a while, but very happy to be part of this wonderful team. Once again. Perfect. And not only do we have a partner, Krishnan, guys, we also have Sophie Schmitz. Now, I'm sure you all know who Sophie is, but if you don't, she is the founder and the managing partner, in other words, the boss at P4A. So we better be on our best behaviour, Owen, today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. I'm delighted to be here today. Okay, so as we mentioned, this is going to be a slightly, slightly different episode. We're actually looking back on the five years, kind of where the podcast started. Why did we even start the podcast in the first place? So I think the best person really to go to is the podcast guru, Miss Apana. Thank you, Georgie. So, okay, let me go back. It was, I think, May when 2018 when we did the first episode. What was the thought behind it? So right about March of 2018, I remember we were looking for our marketing plans and we were thinking about what else can we do to create awareness. And one of the things that we found is, you know, of course, doing the website well and doing all the other, being at conferences, yes. But then we weren't really reaching out to all the stakeholders, all the people could be our audience. It's not just limited to companies or clients. We also wanted to, Think about patients, because that was a voice that wasn't heard as much. And podcast was a very, very new avenue at that time. Well, probably about one or two podcasts, life sciences that was happening. But it was kind of drowned out in the traditional healthcare subjects, looking at regulation or looking at the broad healthcare topics that are there. Or people would have to listen to perhaps the New York Times or something like that, which which again would be, uh, they would have one concept or one episode on rare diseases. So the attempt was, uh, we were thinking about these podcasts out there. and We really wanted to make sure that we were not just a one stakeholder or a one issue podcast. We really wanted to give it a broad spectrum. We wanted to focus on rare diseases. And more, more importantly, in that this, this burgeoning, this, this developing world of cell and gene therapies. These were new concepts. These were new technological developments. There were so many questions and issues surrounding these. There was the science of it. There was the uh, impact on patients, the ones that that companies were trying to 
um, get a grip on, whether it was manufacturing, whether it was development, whether it was regulation. And then it was the outcome. What I remember there was just probably one or two that were uh, gene therapies that were up there about five years ago. And it really seemed quite interesting on the impact of it all. The concept was fantastic. Who wouldn't want something, just a one-shot uh, treatment that would cure the disease? But it was, it was a lot more complicated than that. And we wanted to create that platform, which would give voice to all of those stakeholders who could come in collectively or individually and talk about those challenges because there were several challenges. And, you know, five years down the line, you could see the issues have not really changed. People are still talking about uh, issues in manufacturing, still talking about development. They're still talking about regulation. So we were good at, uh, you know, identifying some of these topics. And that's where it started. Of course, the mundane things were there. We have a journalism background. So I was thinking about what the structure of the podcast should be like people we need to bring in there was a bit of a thing where we thought oh we could do everything of course podcast ah we could do it but when we actually sat down to do it it was, was a lot more difficult we had to think about what microphone to buy or what uh, soundproofing to put on on our meeting rooms and um, it was very interesting I, I remember when when Georgie you came on and we kind of eased you into the podcasting <laughs> world and uh, we had a few sort of, we, we thought about how podcasting had then evolved in those first, after those first three years. And it had become a much bigger industry. So we really needed to up our own game. And that's where we thought, okay, we needed to be far more proactive, bring in far more people from the outside to talk to our listeners, address some of those, those worries and challenges from patient advocacy teams that were there, also the clients, the companies as well, the challenges that they were facing. So it was great to see it evolving from where I started out. It's probably weekly that we did, then we moved to monthly, which was far more efficient and much more sort of gathering of the different issues. And we could really get into the meat of it to now where we have a much bigger audience and a much bigger uh, roster of outside guests. So uh, congratulations, guys. You, you did a great job. You know, you said five years ago, 2018. And when we look back to 2018, even though it was only five years ago, gosh, a lot has changed in that time. Mm. Especially podcasts were quite a niche media back then. It was not many companies did their own podcasts. So it was quite um, innovative that we did such a thing. To now where it's probably one of the main pieces of media consumed by people. You listen, look at people on the train, they probably listen to a podcast. So, you know, it has been a huge change in those five years. And you were at the vanguard of it. I think what we really wanted to do was we wanted to educate. That's where we started out. We looked at stakeholders, we wanted to educate people, create that awareness. And we were very clear that we did not want to have any sort of paywall or any sort of sponsorship that would, at any stage create barriers for our objectivity and our our intent for doing that podcast. So it was something that we had decided on early on. I remember Sophie also mentioning this, that we should go on and look for topics that would be really interesting for our listeners. It's sometimes very, you know, close to people's hearts. Rare disease is seldom covered. It's a huge journey to even getting the disease diagnosed. So we have access to information. We have access to insights. And that is something that we wanted to showcase. We wanted to educate our audience. So, uh, yeah, it was novel, come to think of it. I'm very happy we did it. So looking back upon, our, it's really great just, just to see where, where the concept started and kind of where we are now. What was your favourite episode, looking back on that? I, I mean, I know there's there probably quite a few. Yeah. In your back pocket that you can think of. So there were several, several episodes that I think the first of anything that we tried out is always special. The first external guest we called in, Matthew Harold, I think, the advisor. That was quite interesting. The first conference we attended, we did a live. I remember that. that was funny. God. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the noise? Yeah, the terrible. Yeah. Oh my God, that was quite interesting. And uh, we had to get Sophie in at several intervals and try to get her to interview a couple of people. Those conferences, that was quite interesting. Um, it makes you realise, actually, doesn't it, when you try and do that, how good those media professionals are, are doing those interviews. It's oh. really difficult. <laughs> 
you know, you're under a lot of pressure. You're the person you're speaking to. There's so much going on at the time. It's it's a real art. Yeah, that's when I think we sort of evolved and we understood the logistics of all this and, and how we needed to present it. And I was also producing the shows, which meant making sure the recording was good enough for floating into the different uh, platforms. And uh, yeah, it was quite a task, especially looking at the background noise and uh, trying to make sure everything flowed. The conversation was interesting. So yes, it, it was quite difficult. You were doing everything yourself. Oh, yeah. You know, you were planning the episodes. Oh my god! You yes. were hosting <laughs> the episodes. Oh. You were doing all the research. You were doing all the editing. You were uploading them. You were a one-woman wrecking crew. With all the marketing <laughs> as well to, to promote. Yeah, I mean, she did I mean, everything. I mean, yeah. and that what yeah. people sometimes might fail to appreciate is the time it takes to do all those things yeah. plus you had a job as well <laughs> <laughs> yes yes yeah so it would well go into the night on a friday evening and i would still be doing something uh you know editing at 11 in the, in the night and um, hopefully you know uploading it at the right time despite all of that it was it was a great experience it, it was so much fun and i would do it at a heartbeat next time as well if you give me the chance, but that's it. You heard it here, folks. It's going back to a corner. <laughs> but you, you, you've got these great professionals now who can do the job so much better than I. I started out with it was really trial and error. But uh, you know, a lot of the times I remember uh, trying to persuade some of the team to also come in and talk. And so if you had uh, had to uh, ask a few analysts to uh, come in and talk about a couple of. Yeah. Issues. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Not easy. Not <laughs> easy. Yeah. yeah. And even guests, I think. That was something that Sophie, you helped out as well. I think most of them tried to get, especially the conferences, sort of say, oh, just pull this person in and let's have a chat and see what's developments going on at this company or this patient advocacy. And the that's really changed because before yeah. we were having to reach out to people and now it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Now we have people coming to us and saying, please, please. You know, can we be on the podcast? And hence, we've got what seven, eight months. I've got, I've got a lot, a lot, yeah, lined up. Yeah, we did. We recorded one yesterday, actually, just talking about it. So I think we're pretty full now, up until March time, April. So again, we've got ones booked, uh, lined up, but it's just nailing them down, nailing the time, getting them locked in and recorded. But yeah, we have so many people reaching out to us to be on the podcast. We have so many people coming up to us at conferences and, and places where we go and say. Oh my god! I listen to you. I, I listen to you going to work, or you're the host. You know, it doesn't sound like you because I put a posh voice on, guys. When I'm doing, <laughs> you might not realise it, but actually, this is my posh voice. Wait till you hear me in real life. But no, it, it actually really is amazing. Just where we started and where we've got to now. I mean, when I think back to the first, I mean, I, I used to sit in on a few of them with a partner, just learning. She was really trying to push them over to me, <laughs> and, and I was so nervous about taking on the first one. And the first one I ever did actually was on the back of a conference and it was a presentation that Sophie and Joanna presented around Bluebird Bio. I don't know if you guys have heard it, but it is on the website. So I would definitely recommend you go and check that out. It was very controversial at the time. We had a a lot of noise at the conference around this presentation, but it was really, really valuable. There was a lot of knowledge in there and it was really kind of what not to do as a a selling gene therapy manufacturer and the things that you really should be doing to really make sure you're, you're pulling your best case forward. And I actually listened back to it yesterday it doesn't sound like me. It actually sounds like a robot. And my son actually was behind me listening. He said, Mom, is that you? You sound like an AI robot. <laughs> That's how nervous we were when we first started. And it, and just where we are now, we started very interview style, I think, Aparna, you'll agree. Yeah. And they were great. And again, we got some really good insights. But you never really got the flavour of the guest, who we were talking to. It kind of felt there was no personality kind of with, with the podcast. I think what we know and have really tried to do is make it really conversational style, really get to know our guests and try to bring their personalities. You're talking about very, very difficult topics sometimes. It's very challenging area. You know, rare diseases are not fun. It's, it's not a funny topic. So to try and bring some light into those podcasts was quite difficult to do. And the way we do that is, like you say, by maybe OB's quick fire rounds at the beginning. It's a really nice, fun way. Relaxes the guests straight away. And it does give you a bit of flavour on, on the personality of the person that we're speaking to. So that was a really good thing that you brought in, I think, OB. Anna, you're an incredibly warm, generous person as well. And yeah. I think people, you know, they riff off that too as well. So I think we hope we make our guests feel very welcome. Yeah. And we talk around a variety of issues. And I think the podcast we recorded yesterday, you said oh, that was a wide-ranging discussion. It really was. <laughs> a little bit like, wow, that was really went a few places. But we try and keep things interesting and engaging. And I think it's just a real privilege to do this podcast, you know, neither of us are trained 
media professionals. Yep. So, you know, this, this isn't our day job, folks, but we really do enjoy getting together and recording these episodes and sitting here in a our beautiful office talking to you it almost feels am I at work it's quite an amazing thing so we're also very um, fortunate to have Sophie Schmitz join us today interjecting in a few points Sophie thank you for coming what's your memories of your first recordings of the podcast well the first recording similar to what a partner was saying it's it's gone from being a very haphazard attempt at doing the podcast and really speaking to our brand promise at Partners for Access which is enlightened thinking applied and that was very much what we were looking to do, was to create some enlightened thinking, but apply it to the world of rare disease, which nobody was doing back in the days. It's certainly been an embryonic journey. And where we are now with you two, which I think is a fantastic duo that we've got doing this podcast, is really brought it to life. So I'm thrilled with all the stats that you were talking about there, Georgie, that it's so well recognised by our audience, which is fantastic. It is. I think we're we're ranked number three in the global podcast list. I don't know if you guys, any geeks out there that want to fancy looking up some stats. If I've got it wrong, please do enlighten me and uh, let me know. Put it in the comments. Let us know where we're at. I'm about to moonlight for some other podcasts. So looking back, Sophie, what was your favourite episode? Is there one that really stands out to you that you think, I've really enjoyed just listening to it. I've actually been part of it itself. Yeah, it's really tricky because there's been so many really, really good ones. I think the one that particularly stands out is the one that we did on patient empowerment. Yes. And that was with Lawrence Willard and Neil Bertelson, both of whom are patient advocates in their own right. Very passionate, brilliant guys. And so we had them on and it was such a great podcast. We had to split into two. We had two, you know, part one, part two. And it's something that's really close to my heart as well, the, the patient perspective and how you actually bring that into trial development. And we work with so many companies that too late to bring it in. And what we talked about on these podcasts was more, well, how do you actually ensure the patient perspective is brought into throughout the research and development program and, and through into launch? And so it was fabulous too. It was fun to talk with them. But also their perspectives as well was, yeah, really insightful. I, I remember when we recorded that episode and I think you did a screenshot, mm-hmm. Sophie, of us talking. I think it was in one moment of maybe a technical issue. But just the joy and the enjoyment on everyone's faces was, it was so evident. And you're absolutely right, it was a great episode. And actually just going back to that, you know, we, when we do talk to our guests, we are talking to brilliant people at the top of their fields and we're very lucky to be talking to this wide range of professionals in, in top of their game so it really is a privilege too georgie have you got a favorite episode there's just so many like uh, like sophie and apana both said there's so many i think anything with sophie anything that around the patient i think is powerful anything that bringing emotion out of somebody even if it's you know anger or upset or sad yeah any kind of emotion that you feel when you're listening to a podcast I think it's a great podcast and one that really really stands out the most and actually I wasn't the host on it but that was when I was just getting into the hosting and I did some research and and found the guests and and was working with the partner it was a rare disease focused podcast with we had some patients on there and actually I cried. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't hosting the podcast, but it was so emotional. We had real patients talking about their experiences, and it was just after Christmas. And this particular parent were with her son, Danielle, and they did had a terrible, terrible time at Christmas. They they nearly lost him. He was rushed into hospital. And just listening to her from her side and you know, the burden of the clinical trial and, and just that patient journey, really, what she's living through day in and day out, caring for her child, what her son is going through, really just hit a chord. I just take my hat off. They're, they're an inspiration to people, how they find the strength every day to keep going and keep fighting, not only for themselves and their and then their own child, but also for other families. I just find it incredible. They're just, yeah, as I said, inspiring people with a story to tell and privileged to have them as guests on our podcast. Really privileged. It's one thing to read something, a motive. Yeah. And it's when you listen to someone who's lived it, you know, these things have actually happened and yeah. they are, are happening. And it's incredibly powerful when you have that first-hand testimony, which we've had so many times. So if you haven't listened to some of these episodes, if you go onto Partners for Access, our website, we've got all of our episodes backdated. Have a look, check out the episodes, because there are some fantastic ones that you you may have missed, and you might even get to hear a partner's dance. What an added bonus. So just, just quickly, before we move it on to, uh, to some value for our audience, what about any fate? I know you're quite new 
to the podcast realm, but any ones that particularly stick out for you? Oh, I have to say that every episode we've forwarded has been an education of someone. Just because I haven't been in this industry for as long as pretty much everybody else has, um, I came into it late. So I'm learning a lot as I go ahead, but I think sometimes that naivety helps ask questions and, and be brave enough to ask the questions. But from a slightly selfish point of view, probably my favourite episode was when we spoke to Prasoon Spedi a couple of months ago. And I do know Prasoon from previous experiences, and he was just a wonderful guest. And it was just like shoot the breeze with a great guy, but also talking about a range of really important issues, what's happening, the future of healthcare, having that bigger picture, which I, I really like those sort of things as well, because it, it helps me imagine you know what's going to be happening in the future and, yeah. and it just gave me some really good markers so that was great that was a great podcast yeah so moving on as, as you know guys we always like to give you a little bit of value and that's exactly what we're going to do now so we're going to bring in sophie schmitz now to talk about some value for the selling gene therapies in europe so looking back sophie just give us a little bit of the current landscape where we are now with selling gene therapies in the european system to be honest i think we're still in the infancy so it's been over the last seven years we've had a variety of cell and gene therapies come into the marketplace and only one of them has really taken the market by storm so if we look at last year 2022 sales and this is globally 91 percent of the revenue from gene therapies came from one product and that was Solgensma. that's 91 percent of the global revenues now obviously that shifted and changed this year but still, it's still very much in its infancy. We have in Europe, we just had first CRISPR product that has been approved, which is very exciting because now we're moving to a different type of, of gene therapy, and that's for sickle cell disease. And I'm sure we will see many more CRISPR-Cas9 come into, into the market for many other monogenic. Well, where was that approved, Sophie? Was that the UK? That was approved in the UK, absolutely. And I'm sure next year we'll see that approved with the European Medicines Agency as well. Perfect. What advancements or trends do you foresee in the field of cell and gene therapies in Europe over the next five years? Next five years, so from 23 to 28. I mean, if you if you look at some of the stats and projections that analysts have made for the cell and gene therapy marketplace at the moment, and again, this is globally to start off with, but for 2023, the projection is that cell and gene therapies will be worth around $9 billion, the wow. market. In 2028, that's predicted to grow to $24 billion. So clearly with that threefold improvement, and as I mentioned before, at the moment it's still embryonic, to actually have that growth over three years is quite significant. So I really foresee three specific issues happening as a result of that. So number one, because we're going to have more gene therapies or predicted more gene therapies coming into the marketplace, payers, policymakers, various different stakeholders are going to have to adapt and change because the issues are going to remain. So we're still going to have issues over durability. No gene therapy manufacturer is going to be able to come to the market with 20, 30 years worth of data. So that uncertainty will still remain. We're still going to have the issues of the high upfront cost. This is completely different to the way that pharmaceutical systems and healthcare systems have been set up to fund medicines beforehand. So we're going to be looking at changes in payment models. We're going to be looking at more use of real-world evidence. At the moment, it is used, but sporadically. So systems are going to have to change. And we're also going to be looking at changes to HTA bodies and the way that they appraise the durability of gene therapies. So that's why I'm very much looking at the rise of gene therapies coming from now through to the end of 2028. The second is looking from a more macroenvironmental perspective. When we look at a couple of major pieces of policy change in Europe, so the first one is all around the EU pharmaceutical legislation, and that's driven from the EU pharmaceutical strategy that started in 2020. And for those people that are not familiar with this, it came as a result of various different factors. One was covid and COVID brought with it many different fears and, and concerns over affordability of medicines, over availability of medicines. And there was a big need by the European Commission to change the way that they were managing this. So what we're facing now is probably the biggest European reform in 20 years when it comes to medicines. 
And that has actually, yeah, it is wow. It's, I don't think many people actually really understand the change that this is going to bring. Now, part of that European pharmaceutical strategy is what's called the pearl. I think I think the pharmaceutical industry have a different word for it at the moment. But, um, <laughs> that EU uh, legislation has various different factors with it. And I'm going to mention a couple of them, which I think are really, really important. One is the regulatory data protection. So at the moment, you have eight years data protection, and then you can have another two. You could also get some extra boost with pediatric investigation plan. But you have a, typically it's known as an eight and a two. So you've got 10 years. The new changes are actually looking to reduce that to six years. So six and a two. So that has a significant impact cutting the opportunity that you have for exclusivity by two years. That's, that's really huge. And the second, there's many different aspects of the legislation that's being proposed. But the second that I think is really going to have a major impact over the next five years is what's called launch conditionality. And that basically means that for any manufacturer coming into the European market, they have to launch within all 27 member states within two years. That has never, ever been done with a gene therapy. And Sophie, just to ask you, how many gene therapy manufacturers have successfully launched in all 27 member states within two years of launching in, say, Germany or the UK or any other European market? None. 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 I mean, it's just unheard of. And there is a proposal that for SMEs, small, medium enterprises that will extend to three years. That's even more ridiculous because they don't have the capability, the infrastructure, the means to be able to do that. So I understand the principle, which is wanting to make sure that there is broader access to medicines across Europe, but it needs to be rooted in feasibility and practicality. And at the moment, it, that is not. So when will that come into play? There have been, well, the European Commission would love to see that in 2025. Honestly, I don't really think we're going to see that coming into play until 2026, partly because of the European elections in 24, but also partly because there is a lot of lobbying and challenges of this new legislation. So if this comes into play as it is at the moment, we're going to see a huge shift in the way that manufacturers are looking at Europe as an opportunity and to be able to launch their cell gene therapies. So that's number two. I think that's really big. I haven't even talked about the European, the joint HTA, but that's also something that's coming along as well as macroenvironmental trend. So for those people that are not familiar with this, by the 1st of January 2025, all ATMPs, so obviously cell and gene therapy within there, and oncology orphan drugs will be assessed by a European HTA before then going to subsequent HTA bodies. And the actual way that the appraisal will be performed is not completely confirmed yet. So there's a lot of uncertainty about it. But what we do know is that it will be following a PICO format. And the way that that has been developed at the moment, at least in the pilots that have been done, and there's one pilot that's been done with non-small cell lung cancer, has shown that you're potentially going to have 10 different patient populations, 10 different comparators. It's so complex the way that it's been put together it's going to be extremely challenging for manufacturers to be able to manage that. So that's from the start of 2025. So obviously we'll get many years of that in the next five years. So we'll see what's going to happen there. But I do think that's going to have another major impact on gene therapies in Europe. We've got a, sorry, we've got a great drop-in clinic hosted by uh, Akshay Kumar and Chloe Shepherd on the joint EU-HTA process. So if you want to find out more, check out our website, have a listen, because it's brilliant content on it. Absolutely. I was just going to say, Sophie, it really looks like just listening to you and listening now for the challenges in Europe, do you think, you know, companies will still prioritise Europe as their go-to market when they are thinking about their launch strategies for cell and gene therapies specifically? It's great that you <laughs> asked that because this is the third point I was going to make, that for companies to be successful in Europe in the future, they need to make significant changes. Part of that is an organisational change. So the companies are understanding how do we work with the new legislation? How do we work with that EU HDA? And that is going to take changes from an organisational perspective, the way they look at it, the way that they can manage it in a European regional function, as well as affiliate functions as well. So we're going to see big changes there. We're also going to see changes in the way that companies are being able to manage real-world evidence to build yeah. registries 
the use of digitalization, the use of AI to be able to support those registries. And if companies are not investing in that now, and I know information technology and pharmaceutical companies pretty lag on IT, they really need to make sure that they are putting the right investment behind that, putting the right expertise behind that to be able to succeed. I also see as well, I'm really pleased about this, but I'm also seeing that the growth of what's called patient engagement growing within companies. So you're actually seeing now companies having whole teams of patient experience data, patient patient engagement, and actually really taking that seriously to understand, well, how do we bring that patient perspective um, throughout the whole of the development cycle? So that's also a change that we're starting to see in companies. But the other thing, as I was mentioning before, with that reduction in regulatory data protection is you've got, you literally have got a very short window to be able to recoup your investment. So we're going to have to see companies being faster, smarter, better in the way that they not just launch products, they not just get access at a regulatory and a reimbursement perspective, but make sure that they follow that through and get downstream access to the patient. Because if they don't do that, and we've seen it with gene therapies, we've seen it with the haemophilia gene therapies, they've got access, MGenics, Octavian, and then what happens? They don't actually get the uptake. There is going to be limited time to do that, so companies have to change in the way that they actually think about that and the way that they operationalise. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, folks. You've heard it here first. If you are thinking about launching in Europe, make sure you listen to Sophie and follow those steps. really, really important. And do keep up with our, our latest news. We post regularly on LinkedIn. We do lots of blogs, stuff on our website. So make sure that you are up to date, following us on those pages for the latest news and insights to keep you guys uh, fully up to date. So as we wrap up, what's coming up in the world of P4A in the next few months? Well, we're looking for... Uh, to enter some podcast awards in 2024, guys. So that's really, really big. We are. We absolutely are. So apparently, me and I possibly might be on a billboard in Times Square in New York, but we'll I will post more information on that when I get it. But if we're on there, we have to go to New York and have a photo with our <laughs> billboard. I mean, that's just got to be number one. Absolutely. Just putting that down there. What else have we got? We're doing some conferences next year, guys. So early, sorry, late Q1 in March, we're heading off to the EPA. And Sophie will also be at the DIA. We're doing a Red Disease Day fundraiser. So again, stay tuned for that. But the most pressing, what we're doing at the moment, guys, is really important. It's planning for our Christmas party. I mean, what could be more important than that? And um, we've got a star guest with us today, Prasoon Subedi. Prasoon is currently Access Strategy Team Lead at Pfizer, is based in New York, and has a distinguished career of over 30 years in the life science space. It's great to have you on the show, Prasoon. Thanks so much, Georgie. Has it been 30 years? Am I that old? Probably, close to. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Very, very happy to be here. Very happy to help you burn this wood. Great, thank you. And uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Prasoon. So I have been in the industry for quite some time, started out my career in health economics and outcomes research consulting in very early days, and then decided I liked that. Got into a PhD program at the University of Maryland, so did my postgraduate work in health economics and outcomes research, and then joined Pfizer about 15 years ago. Been there ever since. My roles there have been varied. I thought I would come in and be a very traditional HEOR strategist who just kind of worked on product after product, but have had a, the opportunity to have a really unique career that spans kind of HEOR policy. I was at, at Pfizer when the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was implemented in the U.S. and helped to shape some of Pfizer's response to that. And then also pricing. Um, the last few years in particular, I've done a lot of work on pricing reimbursement, both in the U.S. and ex-U.S. So kind of lived in a triangle of evidence generation, policy, and pricing. Uh, and it's been fun. I've really had a chance to enjoy it. Met some great colleagues at Pfizer across the industry and really enjoy what I do. That's great. So before we go into our, into our main podcast, I'd like to introduce you to a little segment we call OB's Quick Fire Round. I'll hand over to Owen to explain a little bit more and take us through that quick fire. That's good. Thanks very much. Right, Pursoon, it's called Quick Fire Round, but some people know it by the either or name. So I'm going to give you two things and you can tell me which you prefer. And we okay. always start with one, which is, do you prefer the town or the countryside? Ooh, town. Uh, I live in New York City and don't plan on leaving anytime soon. Okay. I knew you were in New York and I knew you were going to say town. <laughs> <laughs> and my next question leads on from that. Would you rather be in Paris in the fall or New York in the spring? Oh, that's a good one. I will still pick Paris in the fall because New York in the spring, 
our weather tends to kind of go back and forth a bit in the spring. So we're quite not out of the winter and quite not into the nice weather. So I have but Paris in the fall seems to be a bit more consistent. Okay. The Beatles and the Stones. Oh, Stones. Always the Stones. Okay, right. 69, or if you were going to go to 1969 or go forward to 2069, what would you choose? Uh, 2069, because honestly, I probably won't make it there myself. I'm very curious about what it's going to look like anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Apple or Android? It's a good question. Apple, just because that's the ecosystem that I live in, but I always feel like Android deserves a little bit more love than it gets. Loving these detailed answers. They're great. Fact or fiction? Fiction. Always more interesting than fact. Would you rather have more time or more money? You know, I think I would have said more money when I was younger. And again, in my advanced age, I think I would go for more time because you, you start to realize and appreciate how quickly time starts to move. Thank you. And this is the last one. This one is a little bit more of a complicated one. And I just mm-hmm. thought this up off the hoof, but it's, would you rather have the ability to forget things at will or the ability to remember everything? I would rather have the ability to remember everything because, again, in my advanced age, things are being forgotten <laughs> anyway. So let, let's just bring them back. The forgetting things at will is kind of happening as a peak anyway. So let's go with Prasoon. Thank you, Prasoon. Folks, Prasoon looks about 25. So don't listen to what he's saying. He's a spring chicken. Oh, bless you. Oh, really? Bless you. And that's the end of our either or. Brilliant answers. Thank you very much, Prasoon. No, me. Oh, I'm glad I survived. Thanks. <laughs> you did indeed. Great answers, by the way. Although I'm not sure you were right with the stones, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> Definitely. We could have this conversation. This is a terrible thing to be admitting on, on a podcast with two grocery people, but I was never a fan of the Beatles. I just never got in. Yeah, I don't know why. And I am shamed by anybody who I speak to about this. So I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I'm, I'm recording it. So this is going to be on the internet and people are going to come after me, I'm sure, in the comments. But, <laughs> Probably will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've just brought it upon myself. So. Isn't it amazing the music, even something that people, you know, so many people think is great. You know, you can think, well, that's not my thing. So the beauty of the world, the beauty of variety, isn't it? And it's, it's exactly. exactly. Thank you so much for the answers. I guess we'd better talk a bit about pharma now. Sure. Absolutely. I think before we go into the discussions, one quick thing. Do we want to do the disclaimer to our audience just to let people know that this is Brazil's own opinions, not those yes. of that he represents? Thanks, Georgia. But again, I'm very proud to work at Pfizer and been there for 15 years, but nothing of what I'm going to say or have said represents my employer's views, right? This is just me having a fun chat with my friends, Owen and Georgie, about kind of my experiences in the space. If you work for somewhere for 15 years, it's got to be a pretty good place. I mean, not a lot of people stay at an organization for 15 years this day and age. I thought I would be there for two, honestly. You know, when my friends from grad school all switched jobs, you know, after one or two years and they pursued that kind of a career track. And I thought I was going to do the same. But Pfizer was just one of these places where I had different opportunities that were kind of like going to a different company anyway. And so I never felt denied. I never felt kind of that I was missing anything. And I really love the people that I work with. When I was in grad school, I was doing consulting work on the side and had a bunch of clients across different companies. I always felt like I had the smartest colleagues and were my best clients. And so I was like, why wouldn't I want to go on this? Absolutely. So 15 years later. So tell us a little bit about Prasoon the teenager. Prasoon, who was getting <laughs> forth into the world. The malcontents. Yeah, absolutely. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have any idea? Is, did you always see yourself in this sort of a life? I am the first-generation American from South Asian parents. My parents are from Nepal originally. And if you, uh, to our South Asian listeners, I'm I'm sure this will be familiar, I was told I wanted to be a doctor. And so (laughs) when I was growing up, I always thought medicine was going to be in my future. I I had an interest in medicine. You know, I like science and I'm oriented that way. Um, But as I got older and, and, and started to figure out my own interests more, I realized I really wasn't like a clinical person. I didn't want to kind of be seeing patients. And so I needed to figure out something else. I also really liked literature. I liked reading and I liked writing. It was kind of my, my journey to get here was really trying to figure out how to marry everything that I liked together, both the science part, like the, the, what is it, the right side of my brain and then the left side of my brain. That was how did you end up in pharma, Prasoon? Oh, completely by accident, Georgie. So it is a year that I shall not name because I don't want to carbon date myself. Uh, I'm fresh out of college. The economy is pretty good at this point, and I'm looking for a job. And all my friends have uh, jobs as research assistants, and so that's what I thought I needed to do. And I happened to find a research assistant position at a consulting firm that did pharmacogenomics research. And I just happened into it, but really enjoyed the work because 
it was exactly that balance of science, right? So data collection, data analysis, and HUR, and then writing and communication, both to clients and, and to external stakeholders in the form of publication about what we were finding. And that's what I really love, right? I love the analytics. I love the statistics, but I also really love the translation, the communication. What does it mean? What's the impact of this? Not just, great, we have this result for something, but what, what do we do with that? So happened into this job and happened into a really wonderful mentor, Dr. Eleanor Perfetto, who is still a dear friend and colleague to this day. She was my boss at the time. And after a year or two really encouraged me, she was like, look, you seem to like this and you seem to be very into this. But if you want to stay in this space, you have to get an advanced degree. You have to go to grad school. And she introduced me to her friend, Daniel Mullins, who was the at that point the head of a program at the University of Maryland. I went to go talk to Daniel in Baltimore and then applied for that PhD program and then got it. And so thanks to Eleanor, thanks to Daniel, you know, they were really instrumental to me kind of getting into this. That's a shout out to mentors everywhere because oh, absolutely. I mean, they are so important, you know, people that do apprenticeships and other things like that. You get someone that you can really trust and they give you that back. It's life changing. Absolutely is, Owen. And I often think about what would my life have been if I not met these certain people at, at certain stages, right? Because, you know, when you're young and don't know what you want to do, and there's a lot of different options, your life can go in so many different directions. And who knows, you know, maybe things would have been better, maybe things would be worse. But I'm just so grateful that I had people who were interested in me, people who were kind to me, people who helped to gently kind of guide me at points where I needed it. And I try often to do the same. Right it, now in this position that I'm in, I have the opportunity to mentor and to work with younger folks and, and to help them think through their careers. And I find that such a privilege because I really try to reflect on the wonderful things that my mentors did for me and try to emulate that and give that back. I think um, anyone that has you as their mentor is extremely lucky. And they, they, they're on a winning t- ticket there, aren't they, Georgie? Absolutely. 100% agree with that, definitely. So just bringing in some value for our listeners, let's have a look back over the last five years of selling gene therapy launches. As a US-based, let's focus on the US market. That makes more sense. The main selling gene therapy launches that that really spring to mind in the US are obviously Bluebird's Integlo, Novartis's Olgentima, Descarta by Kite. I mean, there there are so many that goes on and on. What lessons have been learned over the last five years, do you think, for manufacturers in that selling gene therapy space? I think... Overall, the cell and gene therapies in the U.S., we're still on the early part of a long learning curve in terms of understanding the true value of these therapies and understanding how to both communicate that value to healthcare stakeholders in the U.S. and to get those healthcare stakeholders to adapt their existing processes, systems, frameworks to be able to accept. And I think of this in particular from a pricing and market access perspective. I think every company, kudos to every company that has has put something out so far, because it's not been an easy road. When you're operating in a new blank space where there's a lot of interest and attention and excitement, and I would argue even a lot of skepticism, especially from payers who are so concerned about budget impact. In the US, we're not a cost-effectiveness, right, HUR value kind of market. We're more of a budget impact market, not that those things aren't important becoming more so. But I think there has been a lot of fear about these therapies and about kind of what they will do to healthcare budgets, what they will do to premiums and what patients pay in the market. And I think the companies and the trade industries that I, you know, I've been involved in have worked hard to try to find answers and solutions to them. I think in terms of early lessons or kind of the lessons that we've learned over the last five years, it's that payers are willing to work with us. Things are adaptable. I think also that these therapies, because most of them are so targeted, right? This is not a primary care population where you're treating hundreds and thousands of people. The the patient populations are much smaller, much more manageable. So I think that's helpful. And I think kind of government stakeholders and others have been really willing to work with us to try to find appropriate solutions. So I've been very heartened by what I've seen in terms of those launches. I still think there's a long way to go because as you pointed out, we're just scratching the surface of what these therapies are and we're going to start to see a lot more come through. And so I'm very curious, probably still a little bit nervous about what the future holds in this space because for manufacturers in general, I think we see the space as having a lot of value, right? We see the space as having value for patients. We see the space as having value in terms of return on investment for ourselves. 
but it's about navigating it and leading people through it as opposed to just coming out and being like, here's my gene therapy. Isn't it wonderful? And pay me millions of dollars for it, right? That's not enough. You have to kind of, you have to really build the market, guide people through and help shape everything. And at Bluebird, Novartis, the manufacturers who have come through have, have really tried to do that. It's, it's a little bit like AI in the way that, you know, this is a new frontier where we're yes. embarking on. And there's so much from the old world that we're trying to take with us. And like with AI, there's no going back. <laughs> it's not like it's going to roll back. And with you, there's no going back with it. We just need to keep on going forward and trying to get these systems to adapt to where we're going. And that's yeah. really, really interesting to see what you're saying about trying to get these tracks in place. So the, the next five years, things should be a little bit more smooth. Hopefully, and, and look, we'll probably still have more challenges. You know, the U.S. healthcare system is so unique, and because we are a, a you know much more of a for-profit system than ex-U.S. markets, there are incentives in place across the board that you have to think about in selling gene therapies, right, or any product reimbursement. When you are saving the payer money because you're reducing the need for a chronic therapy with a one-time, right? Well, that, that's usually the argument. When we think about like hemophilia, for example, right? Instead of all of these infusions, we're going to do a one-time gene therapy and, and save you all this money. You're taking away money from somebody else in the system yeah, when you're doing that. And, you know, of course, people want what's best for patients and what's best for the system, but you do have to navigate kind of the unique elements and the financial incentives that exist in the U.S. healthcare system in particular when you're bringing these products to market. And so I think we'll start to see a lot more nuance in how people do that and a lot more thoughtfulness. The system is also very hard to change. And I think it'll be interesting to see how much we see kind of manufacturers changing their strategy in in response to a system that is rigid versus finding ways to adapt the system to the needs of the technology. I think it's going to be a give and take on most Absolutely agree with that. I'm not sure if you've seen, there's been a, there was a recent report that's just out from CVS Health, which is looking at gene therapy launches kind of from now until 2027. And what they identified was there are 37 gene therapy planned launches over the next four years. 17 of these planned for FDA approval in 2024 alone. With that and the expectation that the annual US spending on gene therapies is estimated around $20 billion annually over the, over the next few years, what impact do you think this will have on FDA approvals and the cost of gene therapies in the U.S.? It's a good question. So, um, you know, in the U.S., the FDA is, is the regulator to look at safety and efficacy, and they don't look at pricing. In terms of like the market impact, in terms of all that kind of stuff, that's a very separate question so far in the U.S. So in terms of how the FDA looks at it, historically, they haven't, and I don't think they will. Now, in recent examples, like Alzheimer's therapies, that's become a more controversial issue. But I still think that will be adjudicated not at the regulator or the FDA perspective, but more from a payer perspective. Um, look, I, I think the budget impact and the cost of the system are substantial. I think the U.S. is a short-term looking market in general, right? In, in terms of whereas ex-U.S. you can sell the notion of cost savings over time because it's one healthcare system that captures and treats the patient from birth until death. In the U.S., we have this very patchwork system, right, where I right now as an employee have insurance through my employer, but at some point in the near future when I'm eligible for Medicare, um, the government will be my insurer. And it's how do you bridge, how do you build a value story and talk about the cost savings, not just to the short term, but the long term as well. Or sorry, but not just the long term, but the short term as well. That's the, the question we'll have to resolve. So I guess my, my short answer to your question is, I think it's an ongoing conversation. I think those numbers and estimates scare people. Historically, I think what we've seen is that the numbers are a little overestimated relative to the truth in other areas as well. I don't buy the, the, the 20 billion number in its entirety, but certainly it'll be significant and, and certainly we'll have to work through and think about how to kind of absorb those costs into the system. Really? Just quickly, just oh. on a little side tangent, why don't the FDA assess price? Is there it's out of their purview. It's just out right. of their regulatory purview. Their job is to look at safety and efficacy, and to work with manufacturers on, on the trial design. So the FDA as a body has no remit in pricing, in reimbursement. It's completely separate. All of that goes over to CMS. And the way our US system is set up until recently, there was no price negotiation. So kind of pricing was a completely independent issue. It still remains. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> now, we've talked about what's coming up in the next five years um, in terms of gene therapies. But widening it, widening it up a bit, 
What do you see in the future of medicine for soon? Where do you see medicine and pharma going in the next five, 10 years? I mean, is it, could it be anywhere or, is, or do you see it in a particular direction? It's a really good question. My, my answer is usually it depends on the science, right? We tend to chase the science and where the science is going. So if you think about that, you know, certainly cell and gene therapies are one area of interest, but those again are small populations. Look at what's happening with this weight loss GLP diabetes market. I mean, just exploding, right? Look at what we're seeing in oncology. I think we're seeing much more of a pivot back into oncology as well. But when I look at kind of across manufacturers, where are they investing? Who are they buying in terms of smart biotechs? It's a mix. I think I've seen trends where companies are focusing on the primary care market and really kind of putting all their dollars there. And then we saw this shift. Everybody was moving into specialty oncology. And now we're kind of shifting back to a more hybrid state. I think most major companies are, you know, want to have good primary care business, but also want to have a good specialty oncology business to cover all the bases. So I think we'll chase the science. I think we'll see, you know, continued innovation where the science leads us. I think we'll focus, if I had to guess, much more on that primary care space and try to capture more patients and more volume, just because that's an efficiency thing that helps manufacturers kind of get to the ROI that they need to sooner. I think what I've seen in specialty care therapeutic areas, different manufacturers have invested a lot of money hoping for an ROI and it just hasn't always come through. And when a bet fails there, it's different than when a bet fails in primary care. I also personally hope we see some real breakthroughs with Alzheimer's. Just to, you know, having had that experience in my family recently with somebody who had Alzheimer's dementia and passed away, you know, the, the impact is so big and, and so significant. I would love to see more innovation in that space as well. That was just a little side note and a personal ask. <laughs> I completely agree. It's one of those just horrible things that you see and just takes people sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, and it's utterly heartbreaking. And whether that's going to be in a way that we do with the lifestyle changes of people, whether it's something that it's going to be medical that we can give people as well, I'm not sure. But it's I completely agree with you. It's it's one of those horrible conditions that hopefully one day we'll be able to eradicate. I hope that we think about that in a hundred years' time when people are looking through the internet for weird vestiges of podcasts, they'll find us and say, yes, that's when people still suffer from diseases. <laughs> and they really care about it. Yep. Who knows? The future is a weird and wonderful thing. And whether it's 2069 or 2169, it's, it's obviously a hope for all of us. But uh, until then, it's great that we've got people like you, Prasoon, working in big companies like Pfizer, able to illuminate us on the inner workings of pharma. And thank you so much all your time today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Georgie, any last, last words for, for the wonderful Prasoon? No, just again, thank you so much, Prasoon, for being a wonderful guest on our five-year anniversary. It's a pleasure to have you. I'd love to get you back maybe in the next five years. We can look back at uh, your trends, what you perceive coming for the next five years, see if you're right. Yeah, right, right I was. So there anything, anything out there, that's <laughs> can, we edit, can we edit the podcast to make sure we'll use AI to like make all my predictions perfect at that point? <laughs> Massively. Amazing. Well, congratulations to you guys, Sophie and the entire team at P4A. Wonderful first five years. Looking forward to working with you in your next five. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. You've been a great guest. E4A, Let's Talk Rare, is brought to you by Partners for Access. To find out more about Partners for Access and our commitment to sustainable orphan drug and cell and gene therapy access, please visit our website, www.partnersforaccess.com. Make sure you search for Let's Talk Rare in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Partners for Access, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.